When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, hope you're doing well. Welcome back to a brand new edition of the Ariel Helwani Basketball Show. I'm a really big fan of today's guest. His name is Jay Billis. He's been working for ESPN for about three decades, and I think he's one of the best broadcasters in sports. Obviously, his main field, his expertise is in college basketball, but I would put him up there with any analyst in any other sport. Why? Because he tells it like it is. He shoots from the hip. He doesn't sugarcoat. He lets you know how he's feeling, what's wrong, what's right. He's not afraid of poking the bear. He's not afraid of wearing his uh, thoughts and emotions on his sleeve. He's not afraid of telling the truth. And there isn't enough of that in television these days, especially with all the relationships with the broadcasters and the leagues. So very cozy. They're all in bed. Here's a guy who works for a broadcast partner, right? ESPN, they've been covering and and, and broadcasting and airing college basketball for so many years. He's not afraid to say what is right and wrong, even if it casts a negative light on the NCAA. And there's a lot of people in a similar position who don't do that. So we talked to Jay Billis today about his great career, about why he tells it like it is, about any blowback that he may receive, about rubbing shoulders with the great Howard Cosell back in the day, and if his demeanor and approach to broadcasting rubbed off on Jay. We talk about his basketball camp. We talk about the NBA draft. We talk about Wembenyama, a little Jokic and Murray talk as well. Talk about NIL and unions, the state of the game, all that and more we address with the great Jay Billis, who is such a fantastic guest, so thoughtful and and just wonderful to speak to. I enjoyed this very, very much, and I hope you do as well. So let's not waste any time. A great state of the union, if you will, but also a great trip down memory lane with Jay Billis, who also spoke about the late great uh, Len Bias, who he played with for so many years before his untimely passing. Sit back, relax, enjoy this conversation with the one of a kind, the inimitable Jay Billis. Enjoy. This is a big treat for us. We have one of the greatest minds in the history of basketball, one of the greatest analysts in the history of sports television, regardless of the sport, if you ask me. You can see him uh, all throughout the college basketball season on ESPN's coverage. You can see him in his familiar seat, NBA draft coverage, Thursday, June 22nd. He is the great Jay Billis, who is coming off uh, another one of his great uh, skills camps that just wrapped up at Davidson over the weekend. I appreciate him joining us in a very busy time for him. Uh, so thank you so much for this, Jay. I really, really appreciate it. No, I really appreciate it. And you should have added in two of the biggest lies ever told on uh, in media. Uh, that was way too nice of an introduction. Thank you. Well, it is uh, from the heart, and I mean it, and I really appreciate this. It's a great honor for me to uh, have you on. By the way, uh, you just wrapped up your camp. Um, as I just mentioned, and you've been doing it for several years now. Why do you do this? I saw all kinds of 
uh, tweets and, and, and kids talking so glowingly, coaches who worked for you talking so glowingly about how great it is. Just curious, why is this something that you do? Why is it important for you to do this? It's just a, a way of giving back, I think, uh, to the game and to those in the game. Uh, and I always, I say it every year, you know, somebody, somebody helped each of us and we can't really repay that. The only thing we can do is, is try to help somebody else. And, you know, I started, uh, the camp with, uh, with a friend of mine, John Searby about 10 years ago. And we did it because we felt like we couldn't fix anything on the AAU scene, um, for high school basketball players but we could make things a little bit better in our own backyard. And it uh, has morphed or, or evolved, I should say, into, you know, we have a players component where we had 160 players uh, and we only have division two, II, division three, current head coaches and former division one head coaches staff the camp. So the instruction is really good. And then we uh, bring in young coaches and give them training. USA basketball certifies them. We have classroom training and on-court training. And then we bring in, uh, a dozen or so Division One assistants that are about to t uh, make the jump to, to head coach position, and we give them training as well, media training. Uh, they do mock interviews with sitting ads, things like that, and then we have a bunch of people come in and make presentations to them. So it's kind of a honestly, it's a little bit of a feel good thing for all of us. Um, it lets me get back on the floor for four or five days and get my basketball fix uh, during the summer. Uh, but it's a, it's a really, it's a really fun, fun thing, but it's being on your feet all day is not what it's cracked up to be. I'm too old for that. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, we kind of came to the realization that we can't fix AU. When you say that, what do you mean by that? Well, when I, I, I helped coach my son's AAU team when he was in high school for a couple of years. And, uh, it's kind of a funny story. We were sitting in a side gym at one of these big events, uh, in Georgia, Orlando, wherever it was. And I didn't like what I was seeing, um, you know, the way, just the whole scene I didn't care for. And I, I turned to John Searby, who'd coached for years in college as a division one assistant. He'd been a head coach of division three and an athletic director. And I said, this is awful. And he, he kind of laughed at me and said, you've been sitting in the big gym watching the top 50 players all these years. This is the way the rest of the world lives. And, uh, and he, he's the one that said right at that time, we can't, we can't fix this. It's too big for us to fix, but we can, we can make it better in our own backyard if we want to. And I didn't know exactly what that meant at the time, but we started the camp and, uh, and, you know, it was pretty Spartan at the time. We had 80 players. We were running it out of my checkbook and all that stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, evolved into something much bigger and, and, and much better run. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it, it really has been fun. Uh, for for everybody and uh, and it's been heartwarming to see so many players come through it now we've had players go to the NBA but we've also had guys that that became starters on their high school teams and uh, and I think there's a ripple effect to all of it that whether a player plays beyond high school that player may spend the rest of his life in the game as a as a high school coach or college coach or administrator NBA front office person whatever it is and uh, and how how they are how they navigate through the the game as juniors when they get to high school that's important and uh, and it's important to them uh, and I think they they need to be treated the right way. And I heard a great story and correct me if this is inaccurate. At the beginning of the camp, uh, you bring out all the, for lack of a better word, workers who help clean up the gym and whatnot, and you introduce them by name to the entire camp. 
you let the campers know, you let everyone know that, you know, these people are working hard to keep the camp clean, don't make their jobs more difficult. I've, I've been to basketball camps as a kid. I've never seen someone do that before. Is that, is that true? And if so, why do you feel the need to do that? It is true. I, I, I don't, I'm not always able to get the custodial staff there to introduce them, but uh, we make a big deal out of keeping the facility clean, their dorm rooms clean, uh, treating the, the food service staff with respect because those people are there to serve you. And that's their, that's their profession. You know, they're, they're professionals in their chosen field. And, and I even take it so far as to tell them at different times during the camp, look, you guys are going to be playing in AAU tournaments around the country. You're going to be staying in hotels. And, uh, you know, these places give you gear. You're going to be taking the tags off and you're going to eat in your rooms and all that. Are you going to throw the tags on the floor and make some make someone's mother, grandmother, father, grandfather, uncle pick that stuff up? Or are you going to put it all in one place in the in the receptacle? Or if you got pizza boxes and food, are you going to put it all together uh, and or leave your towels all over the place or leave the bathroom in a mess. Um, it's just a question of respect. And what, what has surprised me, honestly, uh, is how willing the players are when you emphasize it, how willing they are to do it. Now, I knew the parents would like hearing that, but, but, um, but the players do it. And, you know, oftentimes during a camp, I wind up picking up a lot of stuff myself, you know, little Gatorade cups or, uh, somebody's tape that they they cut off or something like that. It's not a lot. The players do a really good job of it, but there's always something. This is a first year. I don't think more than once or twice I had to pick up anything. And uh, and it's something we emphasize. We emphasize them behaving the right way. And there's no reason you can't be a cutthroat competitor on the floor and really nice off of it. Those things aren't mutually exclusive and empathetic. And so we emphasize that. We've never had a behavioral issue um, you know, we've been really lucky there, but, uh, but I think it's more testament, uh, less so about our, our, the way we go about it, more so about the way all those young men were raised. I've always thought that you've had, uh, you, you know, you have a great schedule because, you know, the season starts October, wraps up late March or so, you got to go to the end of the, uh, the final four. Um, I know you're not calling it, but obviously you're appearing everywhere talking about it. Then you get, you know, as the weather is starting to get really good on the East Coast, you get a nice little break, you pop up for the draft, and then you have a nice little summer and you come back in the fall. Is that kind of accurate with the way your life is? And uh, are you okay with that? Like, have you ever had any type of desire to add something else when college basketball is, uh, you know, on hiatus? That That is pretty, pretty much right. But um, there's a lot more that goes into the other months when there aren't games going on. Uh, you know, it's a thousand miles an hour from October, uh, essentially, until uh, the buzzer goes off at the Final Four. And then I take a, a week, maybe 10 days, and I try to unplug a little bit. But then I get, I, I have to start really digging into the NBA draft. And a number of the players that are drafted, a high number I've seen a lot of over the years. I used to go out during the summer and I'd be gone most of the summer at different recruiting events. And uh, I used to work as a skills instructor for Nike when they ran the Nike Skills Academies, things like that. So I was actually on the floor working with the players that were ultimately drafted uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, I don't do that quite as much as I used to just because of my age. And, uh, and you know, I've made, made my, uh, my family a little more of a priority during the summer. But the NBA draft takes up a lot of time. And uh, even though it's only six hours, I mean, on on draft day, the only thing I have to do is bladder management. You know, it's going six hours without being able to use the restroom. I have to I have to manage that. But leading up to it, there's a 
a lot of work that goes into it, but it, it doesn't, to me, Ariel, the only, the only work in my job is travel. Hmm. Uh, I think the other stuff is I enjoy it, even though it's a lot of time. Uh, I'm not breaking rocks for a living and I get that, but I'm on the road a lot and, uh, and travel wears me out. Um, so if I have to get on an airplane, uh, uh during the summertime, um, that's real work to me. And, uh, and I do it a lot, but it's not as much as during the regular season. Are you starting to feel like, all right, you know, I got five years left. I got X amount left. You know, the travel does wear on you. Uh, you're a big guy. I can't imagine it's extremely comfortable on any kind of flight or any kind of seat that you're in. Are you starting to feel like you're going to, you're going to end at this point? Not yet. Um, you know, I'm 59 years old. I, I know the, you know, the finish line is a lot closer than it used to be. Uh, but as long as I'm healthy and I'm enjoying it, uh, I don't see why I would stop. I've never been the type that said, you know, years ago, people would ask you, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I never had an answer. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't sort of goal set in that way that I want to move up to this position or out to something else. Uh, I'm open to anything. I've never said, that I wouldn't consider some other avenue in life uh, because I started out as a, a full-time practicing attorney and broadcasting pulled me out of that after about seven, eight years. I'm still with my firm and I still go into my office, but I don't, I don't practice and carry a caseload like I used to. Um, but yeah, at some point, uh, but I think I'll know, I think I'll know if, uh, God, I hope I know if I, I slip, maybe I've slipped a bunch and don't know it, but uh, as long as I enjoy it and, uh, and look, I get it. We all serve at the pleasure of our, our employer. So, you know, at some point we're all going to get kicked to the curb, whether we like it or not. So whenever they kick me to the curb, I have plenty of other things to do. Uh, you say that you're still, and, and, and obviously knew that about you, that you were a practicing attorney, but, um, you say that you still like have an office, you still serve. So like, what exactly do you do as far as your legal life is concerned? I'm I'm sure the management committee of my law firm is asking that same question. What does he do? <laughs> um, when I went full time with ESPN in the late '90s, uh, I, I think it was, um, I gave notice to my law firm that I was leaving. And uh, as happens in law firms and banks and companies, you know, you give notice that you're moving on. They have a little cocktail party for you. Everybody pats you on the back and has a drink and says good luck. And uh, when they had mine, somebody asked me, well, when are you moving to Connecticut, uh, you and your wife? And I said, well, we're not. Uh, all my stuff is from remote, so we're staying here. And it must have been three, four days later, the managing partner of my firm came in my office and said, we'd like you to stay. And I said, I really can't. You know, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I had, I had agreed to stay at the firm to finish out a couple of cases I had going to trial before I, I, I uh, left. And, and he said, well, you don't have to, We're, we've got a different position for you and, and we'd like you to stay. And I thought, what a great opportunity for me, uh, because I've gone into my law office almost, you know, for, for a lot of years, I went in every day mm. and I did mostly basketball work. But what I really do is, is occasionally I may help bring in a piece of business to the firm. Uh, and then, uh, and then I help with recruiting whenever I can. Um, but it's been a great association for me. I think the, the best part is there are so many, you know, so many of my colleagues are so unbelievably smart and accomplished that whenever there's an issue, whether it's a, any sort of legal issue, which is, you know, pops up in our jobs more than I would have anticipated when I got started. Uh, I've got people I can consult just like I would have consulted on any sort of case I had when I was practicing full time. So it's a, a tremendous resource for me, but it's also, 
it served as a great um, safety net too. When uh, in the first, I don't know, ten years after I went full time with ESPN, that you know, if anything ever happened, if it didn't go the way I expected, or I got I got booted out, uh, I could just uh, not seamlessly, but I could easily get back into my law practice. Uh, I think it'd be a lot harder now. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably not. I'd have to get up to speed on a lot of things, but I could still do it. I'm still licensed to practice and uh, I've kept my license up. And uh, so if you have a divorce or a name change for anybody, you know, let, let me know. Was that your specialty? No, no, I was, okay. a, commercial lit- I was a commercial litigator. So I did a lot of different things, but uh, uh, did some securities work, things like that. But I was uh, uh, litigation is basically trial, you know, trial lawyer, that type of thing. Do you think you would have been happy? If that was your life, if you never went down this TV path and just remained a lawyer? Yes, I would have. Um, but I would not. The thing that really surprised me, Arrows, is when when I quit uh, full-time uh, lawyering, um, I did not realize how much stress I was under. Um, it was just the life I had. So I, I dealt with it. But when I went into something else that that I, I don't think many people would find this hard to wrap their heads around, broadcasting's more fun and it's less stressful. Um, so I held a lot more travel, but that's it. Um, I, there was kind of this stress weight lifted off of me and I felt healthier, I felt better. Um, practicing law is, is not easy and most real jobs are not easy. Um, so, you know, I count myself as very blessed that I'm doing something I really enjoy doing that I don't consider it to be, I work hard at it, but I don't consider it to be hard work. If that makes sense. Hmm. Being a lawyer was hard work, you know, billing 2,500 hours a year and being on call all the time. And, you know, when you're a litigator, sometimes your interactions with people are less than pleasant. Um, so that, that, that wears on you a little bit. And I think you have to have very thick skin. And, uh, and you have to, to figure out a way to manage that stress. I mentioned that you're going to be a part of the draft coverage next week. You've been doing that for 21 years. Is that? Yeah, accurate? this is 21st draft. That's scary. LeBron James draft in 2003 was ESPN's and my first draft. I've been on every draft since then. Wow. Uh, weird coincidence. That's the only draft that uh, I've ever been to as a fan, that 2003. I was, I was a Syracuse guy, so I wanted to see Carmelo get drafted. Um and and I'm just wondering, you know, like this has been brought up over the last couple of days. Uh, do you recall, you know, this 2014 draft, Nikola Jokic getting drafted during the Taco Bell commercial? You're obviously at the desk, but like, you know, when it's a commercial break, you're doing a bunch of stuff. Do you even remember the moment when Nikola Jokic got drafted? Yes. You do? <clears throat> I do, because I did not, I did not, I'd seen him uh, on tape, but I didn't know much about him. And, uh, and you know, back then, Fran Fraschilla, uh, the great coach and broadcaster uh, handled all of the international prospects as far as giving commentary on them. And as you know, once you get to the second round, um, there's not a lot of time because the the time is compressed in the broadcast and the, the commissioner, associate commissioner comes out. And I don't know whether it's two or three minutes in between draft selections, but it goes pretty fast, at least much faster in the first round. So I don't remember feeling like or anyone saying that hey man you know this guy's going to be an mvp um and look we've seen that before with guys like manu ginobili or tony parker guys who got drafted late first or into the second round and we didn't realize the gem that was uh was uncovered there 
but I do remember it, but I don't remember, you know, having this uh, revelatory, oh my God, right. you know, wait till you see this guy. You and everyone else, I'm wondering about Jamal Murray, because more people knew who he was. Did you expect him to be this good? And of course, we're talking just hours after they, uh, the Nuggets, you know, win the championship and they're led by these two international stars, which just speaks to the growth of the game. Um, did you think Murray would turn into this version of himself? I thought Jamal Murray would be really good and be a, an outstanding NBA player. Did I see uh, this? You know, maybe the same with a guy like Kawhi Leonard uh, out of San Diego State. I thought he was going to be outstanding. But did I think he was going to be an MVP, first team, all NBA caliber player? Because, you know, you didn't have the shooting piece back then. Uh, Murray did. Uh, Murray c could really score. So you knew he was going to be really good, but to be, you know, as the as he's matured, uh, to be an All NBA guard and uh, and one of the best guards in the league, you know, you weren't sure. They're they're always kind of in the back of your mind with some players, and you know, Murray had a really good year at Kentucky in his one year there, uh, but you know, now there's more data with these Kentucky guards. It's amazing how many Kentucky guards have outperformed their Kentucky careers, which have all been really good in the NBA. Like they've been better and like Tyrese Maxey, better NBA player than college player. Uh, same thing for Emmanuel quickly. You know, we could go down a long list of, uh, of those guys and, and Jamal Murray's one of them. He, but he had a probably, probably a little bit easier to see with Murray because he was such a polished scorer in college. Whereas a couple of the other guys uh, out of Kentucky were, it wasn't quite as obvious. Is there a player that comes to mind that you were really high on that was not a big name that you were trying to tell people this guy is going to turn into something and felt at the time like maybe you were on on an island like no one was really in agreement with you and and you know that thought has proven to be prophetic that you were actually right and you've kind of followed this guy throughout his career like is there a guy that comes to mind you know like an underdog if you will uh, off the beaten path that you called out and that, you know, you have been proven right over the years. I know I'm putting you on a spot here, but is there a diamond in the rough that comes to mind? There have probably been some. I mean, I was really high on Donovan Mitchell when he came out of Louisville. Uh, I knew he was going to be a first round pick, but I thought he was, uh, uh, you know, a top top 10, top five pick. And and he went further down the, the line than that. Um, I, I tend to remember how I screwed up more than how I was yeah. right, honestly. Um, who's the, the biggest the, screw up? Oh God, I've had so many of those. I mean, the, the biggest one was, even though I wasn't saying that, um, you know, I thought he should have been the second pick was, was, uh, I didn't realize how, how great Dwight Howard was going to be because when he was coming out of high school, I was still in my pea brain kind of Neanderthal thinking, that wait a minute now he, he's he's a high school player he is unskilled all he is is a magnificent athlete and whatever skill he may have lacked one he developed a lot of those skills uh but uh you know he's never going to be as skilled as kareem or anything but uh his his freak athleticism trumped all of that and uh and and i was sitting there thinking you know the safer pick at number one is a mecca okafor out of yukon you're going what, what was i smoking um, but that was just, you know, having to, to train my mind that, wait a minute, you know, like some of these guys are different and, uh, and there are certain times where you say, don't be seduced by athleticism. And other times when you say, no, when you have a freak, um, take the freak. And, uh, cause those are the guys that make the biggest difference. And, 
But maybe the one that that I remember off the top of my head was when Joel Embiid came out of Kansas. Uh, there were question marks about his health. He had a foot issue, and uh, and I was like, I don't care. He's the best player. It's not close. Like he's the number one pick. Take him number one, unless he's got Bill Walton's mother's feet. Take him. And uh, but you know you, you say that stuff. But the hardest ones for me, honestly, are when it when a player gets drafted high. And you're convinced that he he can't play in the NBA. And when I was younger in the draft, I was definitive and I was probably pretty harsh on those things. And I've tempered it down a little bit. I still say what I think, but I say it in a little bit more palatable way. But, uh, you know, one of them, there was a player that got drafted out of BYU years ago named Rafael Arujo, who's a mm. great college player. And, Toronto, and, right? Yeah, and uh, and he got drafted, and uh, and I I just said I don't see him making it in the NBA, and uh, and it was not a pleasant thing to say, and I hope I said it okay. I mean, I I I need to go back and look at it, but hopefully I've gotten better at that. You know, I, I think in in our jobs, as you know better than I do, that that you know we strive to say the right thing at the right time in the right tone. And when you're delivering some news that's less than palatable or an opinion, uh, I think I think the right tone is really important. And and earlier in my draft life, I probably I probably missed on tone quite a bit. And just curious, is that a conclusion that you came to on your own, or did someone tell you? Did you have an interaction with someone? And be like, you were a little too mean. You were a little too harsh. No, it was on my own. Um, you're always going to have people that differ with you um, in in any anything you say, not anything you say, but in in any walk of the business. So if I'm on a game and I say something, people may differ. The draft brings out a lot of that because all of them are projections. You know, we could sit uh, like you can't go through the draft and say everybody's great. You know, the first pick great, second pick great, third pick great. They're not all great, and they're not all going to be great. And so you have to give your opinion. And, uh, and I accept that I may be wrong. Um, and whatever I say, they'll, they'll play their way either, either to the opinion or out of the opinion. The opinion doesn't matter. Uh, it, but, but I did have somebody one time say, it was actually Jerry West. He didn't say it to me, but he said it in front of me. He said, you know, you have to remember this is the biggest night of their lives and you can't just rain all over their parade. Uh, and, and, I, I do agree with that, that there needs to be some care taken with that. But at the same time, you can't just, you know, every gift you open isn't the best gift you've ever received. And every pick isn't the greatest pick ever. Uh, that's why they, they slot them. Uh, you know, they don't say the, they don't call everybody the first pick. Um, so that it's okay to, to have opinions. They just have to be stated the right way. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm still trying to, to, to do the best job of that. You also have a job to do, and one of the reasons why you are my favorite, and I'm not just saying that um, because I'm talking to you, is because you tell it like it is. You don't sugarcoat things. Even when it comes to the business of the NCA, and we're not even speaking about that right now, but you know, like, you know, for lack of a better term, you're not a blowhard, right? You, you just tell it like it is. It's one of the reasons why people love Charles Barkley so much. And I was wondering, I've always wondered this because I know very early on in your career, you had some interactions with the great Howard Cosell, someone that I've looked up to for a very long time. I've never met him, but, you know, in the fight game, he was the one who told it like it is. And in other sports, Monday Night Football, baseball, et cetera. Any Howard Cosell rub off on you to be the guy like, that you had a, just like he would always say, you had a duty to always tell it like it is and not sugarcoat things? Because I think you're very much known for a guy who doesn't do that. 
Yeah, a little bit. Um, Howard, I, I had the chance to to meet with him a few times and had uh, had meals with him. And wow, excuse me, we were panelists on something called the National Sports Forum back in 1986, and spent a fair amount of time with them. And he actually, uh, at that time, you'll remember, he wrote a book. And uh, he used to refer to athletes getting into broadcasting as the jockocracy. He looked down upon it and didn't think it was was good for for sports or broadcasting or whatever. And he encouraged me to go to law school. Um, you know, I had mentioned to him that I had an interest in broadcasting, and uh, and he um, he said go to law school. You know, he heard I had an interest in that too, and he said you need to go to law school. <laughs> and uh, uh, and I did not just because of that, but that was an additional sort of little nudge in that direction. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, you know what good is is your opinion if you don't state it. And I'm not stating it. I, I, I don't think you or I state our opinions just to state them. We state them for a purpose. And you know, I, I don't. That's why I don't say in my opinion. You know, mm. everybody knows it's my opinion when I say right. it. Right. If it was somebody else's opinion, I'd say, "Hey, hey, Jeff Van Gundy said this." Um, I uh, I don't feel bad about that. the The one thing I, I I strive to do, though, is every opinion that that I state on television or otherwise that I, I state publicly is thoughtful. I've thought about it. Doesn't mean I'm right, and and I'm also willing to be wrong, and uh, and I'm willing to have my judgments challenged. And it doesn't hurt my feelings when my judgments get challenged. Um, at the end of the day, like I, I used to have this discussion with officials. You know, I'm, I'm one of those that will say during game, that's a bad call or that's a good call. I, I, you know, you wind up good calls. You don't have to praise too much, but um, I'll, I'll say that's a bad call. And why? And there are some officials who don't care for that. And they've told me that. They said, you've never refereed a game. You have no business doing that. And I'll say, well, I've never cooked a meal, but I can say whether it's good or bad. I mean, I know the game and I know the rules. I don't know well as, as well as officials do. But my and I've told the officials, my opinion has never changed one call. Like you can't even hear it during the course of the game. It's never overturned a call. It's never influenced another call. Um, so what difference does it make? Like the people at home are questioning the calls. I don't see why I can't do the same in an informed way. But one thing I've always done, all the officials have my phone number hmm. and I've told all of them that if you hear me say something you don't like, or if you hear me say something you think is incorrect on the rules or otherwise, call me. I promise you it'll be well received and, and it'll be a good interaction because I want to get it right in the broadcast booth as much as they want to get it right on the floor. Respect for that. Um, just curious about Howard, uh, since, like I said, I've never met him, but always been fascinated by him. What was he like to a young Jay Billis? I know you said you gave he gave you that advice, but you know I've heard Bob Costas talk about how he was a little bit rude towards him. Uh, was he nice to be around, or was he you know a little standoffish? He was great with me, but I was not a threat to him. Mm -hmm. you know, Bob Costas was probably a threat right, to him. Right, right, right. Um, uh, you know, I, I look at I kind of look at uh, Cosell the way I look at, at Bob Knight or something that. That there's an overwhelming amount of of positive, um, but there are there, of course there were some negatives. And look, I didn't agree with him on the whole jockocracy thing, but um, but he was very very good to me. But I was a senior in college at the time, and I think he looked upon it as a, a mentor situation where he could 
you know, and, and he literally did this, put his arm around me to give advice. Wow. And uh, um, so that was a nice position to be in. Uh, I had worked for ABC Sports when I was in college. I was a, a production assistant slash runner uh, at a lot of uh, ABC events. And uh, so I had run across him and met him. And then he would, and may maybe that was a little bit of a connection, but we spent a fair amount of time together at, at that one weekend where we did that, that uh, national sports forum. And he couldn't have been more uh, generous with his advice and time. And, and, and what impressed me was he listened, he asked questions and he listened, and then he offered thoughtful, uh, thoughtful opinions and judgments on what he heard. Uh, did your desire to work in broadcasting develop because of that role with ABC as a, as a PA slash runner, or did you go after a role like that because you were interested in broadcasting beforehand? That was all Coach K. So hmm. when I was in high school and, and started becoming a recognized player, um, the way I remember it is, you know, you'd get maybe a local paper, do an article on you at the LA Times or something as you got good. And I, I got a lot of the same question, like, what do you want to do after basketball? And the truth is, Ariel, I didn't have a good answer. I didn't know. And at that time, there were a number of athletes getting into broadcasting. You know, Frank Gifford was doing Monday Night Football and Don Drysdale was doing baseball and all that. And so I thought, well, maybe broadcasting, uh, you know, I, so I started saying that and uh, the coaches that were recruiting me read that and knew that. And so the focus of some of my visits were they would take me to their communications department and introduce me to people. And Coach K introduced me to a producer at uh, Duke alum at ABC named Chuck Howard, who was a, a big wheel in the business. And, uh, and Chuck gave me a job. Uh, my first job was I worked the 1983 PGA championship and at Riviera country club in Los Angeles. And I did pro bowling events with Chris Schenkel and Nelson Burton jr. I did Monday night baseball. I did the 1984 Olympics. Um, I did a lot of stuff and, uh, and it gave me, uh, an introduction to, to the business. I didn't work in front of the camera. I was about as behind it as you could get. But oddly enough, a lot of the people I worked with in the same position I was in became big shots in the business. And, and a lot of people I worked for, uh, I still work with now. Um, so it was really a cool thing to do. And, uh, and it definitely, um, definitely kind of increased my interest in it. Uh, but I, I never thought, honestly, I never thought it would happen, especially after I went to law school. I thought I was either going to go the coaching route or I would, would settle in as an attorney. Um, just curious, recently, uh, your longtime colleague at ESPN, Kirk Herbstreet, sort of made the transition to NFL while still staying with college football in a very big way. Have you ever considered doing something similar with the NBA? If ESPN wants me to do it, I would do it. Um, it's not something that I've been banging on the table or banging on anyone's door asking, asking for. Uh, I've done some NBA games when they do those announcer swaps, yeah. and I loved it. Yeah. Um, the hotels are a lot better. Um, you know, you're in big cities, um, but I would do it. Um, but I, I, I felt, I feel like I've built up a career, uh, in college basketball. And so it would essentially be starting a new one, even though I've got experience in broadcasting now. Um, so I've never really thought, oh, I, I need to do this. I need to make this transition. You know, Doris Burke did about as seamless a transition as you could, uh, to, to, and she's magnificent doing NBA, but it's never something I've asked to do, but, uh, I've always told the ESPN, it's the only place I've ever worked as a, as a broadcaster. I've always told them that 
whatever you want me to do, I'll do. You know, if they if they want me on the NBA, they'll put me on. If they want me on something else, they'll put me on that too. And by the way, speaking of broadcasting, um, just curious, uh, why is there a Bill Raftery nameplate uh, over your left shoulder? Um, that that actually, I did the last game in the Meadowlands in uh, East Rutherford, New Jersey. It was 2011. It was Duke versus Butler when Brad Stevens was still at Butler. Yes. And uh, uh, when I went into the arena for practice, they were cleaning out. You know, it was last game. They were they were kind of taking things apart a little bit. So uh, there was someone in there cleaning out Bill Raftery's old office from when he was at Seton Hall. Wow. And uh, and uh, the gentleman brought me in there and said, do you want anything from here? And I teased Bill. I said, you know, I, I told him I didn't want any of the old empty liquor bottles. But uh, but I saw the nameplate and I said, can I have this? And he said, yeah, take it. So I put it in my book bag and uh, and I've had it ever since. So That's I used amazing. to keep it on my desk in my office. But, uh, you know, after COVID, we, had, we all have to have our little backgrounds. I just put it back there. I love that. Um, by the way, speaking of the draft, uh, and I apologize if you've been asked this question a thousand times, um, but in your opinion, Wembenyama's ceiling, who, like who, how good will he be? Who can he be like? It seems like he's got a great situation in San Antonio that he's fallen into, but what are your thoughts on uh, Victor Wembenyama, who we all think is going to be the number one pick? He's going to be the number one pick, uh, absent not showing up and deciding he wants to quit the game. Right. Um he's unlike any player uh, Ariel I've ever seen um, at seven, four, he's got an eight foot wingspan. You know, he's one of these range shot blockers, you know, he can switch off onto a guard and play five or six feet off him. And still he's got the agility and length and size to, to block a, a jump shot and certainly to bother it. Um, and he's so skilled offensively. You know, I, I played against Ralph Sampson in college. Seven four, you could argue when they were the same age, they were, you know, clones with the way you know their body style and all that stuff. I think if Ralph Sampson were born twenty years ago and raised the way Wembanyama has been raised to play the 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 modern game, uh, I think Ralph Sampson could be could be him. They they, they could be interchangeable. But Ralph was born in the era of of when you were in basketball practice at certain level of practice they would say all right big guys down at this end guards down here and ralph is a back raises a back to the basket big guy uh he could he could shoot it but he wasn't asked to to handle it you know it would have been unthinkable for a, a guy like ralph sampson to bring the ball up the way nikola Jokic brings it up or the way Wembanyama can but he can he can shoot threes. He only shoots thirty percent, but he's got a great stroke, and he's like an 85 percent free throw shooter. Um, he's got a fantastic stroke with deep range, and he his strides are so long. I mean, he's a one dribble guy from the three point line to get all the way to the basket and, and dunk it. And I think he's going to get a lot stronger. Uh, his body frame gives you a little bit of uh, question, and and you could question maybe is he going to be durable? But he's never shown any injury history, and he takes really good care of himself. So I think he's a absent uh, absent any sort of injury issue. I think he's a he's a superstar. One more draft question, and thank you again so much for this. This is a great insight. I really appreciate it. Um, I love the history of the game. 1986, you were drafted by the Mavericks in the fifth round. Uh, never actually played for them. Uh, but you were part of the same draft class as the late, great Len Bias. Uh, you also played in the ACC when he played in the ACC, right? Um, just curious, your memories of Len Bias, um, I always think about him around this time, and how good do you think he could have been? 
I think Len Bias would have been the direct counterpart to Jordan for best wow. player in the NBA. That's how good he was. Wow. And he was his direct counterpart in college as the best player in the ACC. Um, he was my year in school. We both graduated high school in 1982. So we played against each other for four years and we played in some all-star events after, uh, after college and got to know him. I didn't know him certainly as well as my DC teammates at Duke knew him. They knew him really well, but he was Superman. And uh, the combination of athleticism, strength, and uh, just a magnificent shooting touch. He was a beautiful jump shooter, uh, ultra competitive. Um, I still remember uh, when I found out that he died. And the only thing I could analogize it to was my parents' generation could remember exactly where they were and what they were doing when they, they heard uh, President Kennedy had died uh, in 1963. And, uh, and I felt the same way about Len Bias. You know, the fact that he's still talked about now, um, and uh, I think all you have to do is go back for any young person, go back, uh, look him up on YouTube and and watch it. Um, he was unstoppable, unstoppable. And uh, I think he would have been a Hall of Fame player. Where were you and what were you doing when you found out? I had just it was just after the draft. I was at home in Los Angeles and uh, my mother told me, um, you know, there's no Internet back then or phone, you know, cell phones, anything like that. And she had heard it on the radio and she told me that Len Bias had died. And I said, oh, come on. Like, what are you talking about? And uh, and I saw it. And uh, it was it was one of those things that kind of took your breath away that you were like, what? And uh, and in the aftermath of that, you know, you, you remember Lefty Drizel lost his job. There was a uh, it was there was a Paul cast over it. And you know, when people say that and there are people that have said this, they have said that a lot of good came out of that. You know, people gained an awareness for, you know, drug use and things like that. And uh, and I differ with that. Nothing good came out of that. Not long after that, uh, uh, a man named Don Rogers, a All-American football player playing in the NFL, uh, died similarly. And if you recall, Congress took up uh, the issue of, of drugs in America. And that's where mandatory sentencing came in and mandatory minimums. And all the people that have rotted in jail over small amounts of, of, of drugs, uh, it, a lot of that started with the, the passing of Len Bias and uh, just a hor horrible, horrible things. And uh, obviously horrible for Len Bias. And then his brother, his brother Jay died several years later. He was, uh, he was killed in a, in a, he was shot and uh, just a, you know, just horrible. And uh, so I'll, I'll always look back on that with fond memories of Len as a player and a person. But the aftermath of that, nothing, nothing good came out of that. Uh, only bad. Uh, you're such a great proponent for the players, which I respect tremendously. Um, I know you're happy about NIL. I'm just curious, a couple of years in, are, are you happy with the way it's all playing out for the game? I'm happier because the player I'm happier than I was because the players now have some economic rights, but they still don't have full economic rights. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I look at NIL as kind of a stopgap for the NCAA on, on the road to where I think we'll be in the relatively near future. And that's schools just signing players to contracts because it's cleaner, easier, and smarter. 
uh, it boggles my mind that we can have a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry on college campuses and they feel like uh, the, the revenue drivers need to be restricted. Uh, there's nobody else that's restricted. There's no other student that's restricted in their chosen field uh, while they're students. And the idea that athletes need to be restricted or we need to have these quote unquote guardrails um, to me is ludicrous. Um, and I, I've been around so many players in the last couple of years that have benefited greatly, not only from making money, but from the education that comes along with it. Uh, you know, I was with a football player recently from Michigan who's taken his substantial NIL money and he's purchased real estate properties. He's interested in real estate and he's got a portfolio of real estate properties. And that's one of the reasons he decided to come back for another year of college football when he could have gone into the NFL draft was he's making really good money. He can pursue, pursue his education even further and uh, and he can continue uh, to increase his, his uh, real estate portfolio. And so it's a marvelous springboard um, for all these players when they get out, quote unquote, into the real world. Uh, they're uh, they're far more prepared now than they would have been otherwise. And and you know I just don't I, I don't see anybody getting hurt in this. It's just a if if we really needed guardrails, we'd probably need guardrails with regard to playing time. You know we we should say hey you know everybody's got to play play a certain amount of time, so it's completely fair. Um, you know, we can't, we can't have it unfair in any way. We would laugh at that sort of suggestion. Uh, and we should laugh at the suggestion that, that athletes should all make the same thing. They all have the same value. And just because some athletes don't make anything that it should restrict what the highest earners make that that's absurd. And by the way, how far do you think we are away from the contract scenario playing out being a reality? I think we're close. Uh, like five years, less than five years. I, I think we're looking at that sort of um, that sort of time frame, because uh, the NCAA is after the Alston case where they got they got eviscerated nine to nothing before the U.S. Supreme Court, and Justice Kavanaugh wrote that scathing concurring opinion. The NCAA is afraid to run afoul of federal antitrust law, so they're not making any rules with regard to to NIL. They're afraid. And rightfully so. You know, I, I tend to think if you want to if you want to uh, stop getting sued for antitrust violations, stop violating federal antitrust law. It's like saying if you want to stop getting speeding tickets, well, quit speeding. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't have to put, we don't have to put guardrails around the police. Just quit speeding. Um, so I think we're headed that way because the the all the the current lawsuits now uh, are for revenue. Um, the players are going after revenue next. And uh, I've heard people say to me, they say, well, there should be a salary cap. Like there's a salary cap in the NBA, the salary cap in the NFL. And I'm like, yeah, there is. But NFL players and NBA players get half of the revenue. And I don't hear anybody saying they want to provide half the revenue to college players. Right now, college players are cheap in the NIL market. They're cheap relative to their value. But if schools just say my sort of view of this comes true and schools can just sign players to contracts pretty simple. You know, you're recruiting a guy, five different schools are in the, the player's final five. They each make a contract pitch uh, and they offer him, I will offer you $500,000 a year for four years with, an, you know, options, whatever. They can put in a buyout provision if they want. Uh, they can put in contract conditions that if the player is arrested, they can terminate. If the player uh, falls behind the school, they can terminate, things like that. Uh, it would be really clean and easy. But uh, the NCAA is afraid of having them be employees. They've, they've planted the, the flag on the employee 
hill now where before it was just uh, amateurism. Amateurism is dead. And now they're saying employment. That's where we're drawing the line. And that makes no sense because all these schools have tons of student employees and, uh, and the world still spins firmly on its axis. Uh, it won't fall off its axis if athletes or employees or if a school decides to sign an athlete to a contract. Will we ever see a union? Well, we'll probably see tra- a trade association. Union's a little more complicated because you've got public and private institutions okay, uh, yeah. out there. Hmm. So that that could be a, a little, little bit more problematic. Um, you could certainly see it in different states or with different institutions. But uh, I, I think what's more likely, and we're seeing it now, uh, there are there are NIL collectives that are kind of banding together to form a trade association right now. Uh, and but the problem, I mean, there, there are a fair amount of problems with the NIL space. One is um, uh, is tax exempt status. So uh, if if say Duke could sign me to a contract when I was coming out. Um, right now in the NIL space, if Duke's recruiting me and they go to some of their alums or boosters or whatever supporters and say, look, we need some money to sign this current class that we're, we're recruiting, uh, the, the boosters may say, all right, we'll give half the amount of money we were normally going to give to the school, to the school. And then we'll give the other half to the collective. Uh, and, and this way you could give it all to the school. It's all uh, you could get a, um, a tax break on giving that money. It's a charitable contribution to the school. And then the school pays the money out as they see fit. It's just cleaner, easier, and, uh, and it would be a heck of a lot more palatable. Because I know a lot of people that are giving money in the NIL space, um, boosters giving money to their collectives. And they're saying, I really am going to get tired of giving money for one-year contracts. Hmm. You know, I'd rather do this in a more, in a more business-like fashion. Um, so what's really clear is the fact that all these places have started collectives. They want to pay their players. They, they want to compete for, for talent. Uh, so why not just do it straight up and, uh, and do it in a, in the most intelligent business way. And that's, uh, that's more in the contract space. Two last quick things. I'm just wondering how you feel about Instagram and personal trainers and all that. Has that ruined the game at all? It's like, you know, there's a lot of, I kind of feel like there's a fear sometimes from the players to ever screw up because they're afraid of going viral. They're afraid of being mocked and whatnot. But there's this whole other element of, you know, them as high schoolers being superstars. And they were always superstars back in the day, but on an international stage. And you see like, you know, a big a big recruit posting where he's going to school and there's millions of views on this thing. And I'm wondering if they're, if that is healthy for them and, and, and their, their mental health and their their ego and all that. How do you feel about this whole like sort of social media culture and how it's infiltrated basketball? Well, we think the right, I think we think the same way. I hope it's the right way. And that that's, that's by virtue of healthy versus unhealthy. Mm. And I think it's easy for someone my age to say it was healthier back when I was playing when we didn't have these sorts of things, but player rankings were just really getting going back then. And I was the same as, as any other kid and any kid today. Uh, I loved it when I was ranked. Uh, highly, um, uh, it bothered me when uh, when I wasn't ranked as high as a player I felt I was better than. I got wrapped up in that just like anybody else would. Who's recruiting you? That type of thing. Um, so I, I would be exactly the same as these players now. Uh, and we we do a lot. We just did at my my basketball camp. We do a lot of parental programming at that camp, trying to help uh, parents navigate it because they get wrapped up in it too. 
Um, it's not just a function of the player's age. It's just the, the way the business seems. It's an entertainment industry now. And, uh, you know, I tell the, the, the parents that it's okay for your, your player to have a dream to play in the NBA. Just can't be their only dream. Mm. You know, they've got to have other dreams too that they're pursuing. Um, the, the stuff about posting on Instagram and, and TikTok and all these things when they, they get an offer, they make a big deal out of it. I'm okay with all that. Um, as long as it's kept in the, in the proper perspective that, um, that's not all you are is the basketball player. And, um, um, for me, it was the most important thing, but it wasn't all that I was. Um, but, but it was the most important thing to me. Uh, I was lucky my parents kind of, uh, you know, counseled me the right way and all that. One of the things that, that I do get concerned about though, when you mentioned trainers, I think having these these sort of skills trainers and all that for players has largely been really good. Um, but, you know, at my camp, like just as an example, you know, we might give them an hour, an hour, 15 minutes for lunch. And those guys can wolf down their lunch in 15 or 20 minutes and they're back in the gym getting shots up. And there might be a dozen, two dozen of them in there at all these eight or 12 baskets. And they're never playing two on two or one on one or knockout or anything like that. And it's just a different time now. You know, when I was playing, we would have we would have put a game together mm. and played pickup. And they don't do that now. And part of that's our fault. Um, everything these players go through is structured now. And and there, there's there's less of having to figure it out on your own or going to the playground with a group of guys and putting a game together. You know, somebody showing leadership. I was like, all right, you four guys versus us four guys. We're going to play to seven. And then the guys sitting out, whatever. Heck, when my kid was in high school, he would go to open gym and the coaches would put players on teams. That's not open gym. You know, that, that, that's, uh, that, that's basically a, a, a practice, a structured right. practice. And so we're missing some of the leadership qualities that were intrinsic to the game back then. Um, and, and some of the competitive stuff, like if you're not playing one-on-one, if you're a slower player like me, how do you know what techniques to use to stay in front of a quicker player or to, you know, give them a little bit more space and then recover? You you have to, you have to, that's a learned behavior and uh, a learned skill. And, uh, and so many of these things like the, the individual work, I, I used to watch my son go through it. I took him to a lot of those things. He went two, three times a week and it was all one on O. Mm-hmm. Or, and a lot of that was for uh, insurance reasons. You know, if they had if they had competition, their insurance cost more. But they would go through these drills that were the seven moves that Kobe Bryant did. They call it the Kobe series. And how many guys can do that? So they they or actually make use of it in a game. And they're all individually created moves instead of you know a lot of what you should be doing is passing and cutting and uh, and things like that. What do you do without the ball? And so that we're kind of missing a little bit of that, but by and large, the players today are better than they've ever been. They're more skilled than they've ever been. If we could figure out that other piece, you know, they, they'd be off the charts. And finally, and this also uh, pertains to social media and kudos to you for embracing social media. I see you on uh, TikTok, 
all over the place now, obviously on Twitter and Instagram. And I know you do work with the great Brandon Kaminsky, who I worked with as well at ESPN. So I see his fingerprints all over your stuff and it's brilliant. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great for you and your career and your brand and all that stuff. I know you've been asked about the tweets, the young Jeezy tweets, time to go to work. Uh, I, I know you've explained the story before, so I don't want to have you do that again. If it, just someone could Google it, Draymond Green, you're asked about it. You've got you've got the street cred, and you continue to do this. I saw an interview that you did with him, I think for Vibe, and it's eight years ago, and you're talking about this, and you're still doing it. You did it this morning, and so have you ever missed a day? And why do you feel the need to still do this? You have the lyrics, you have the time to go to work. Why do you do this? And it's amazing looking at the replies, and you still get people being like, "Jay, is everything all right? Where's this guy, brother?" <laughs> All these years later, they still haven't caught on. So why do you keep doing this? I do it because it's fun. Um, <laughs> that, that's the only reason. Uh, and uh, I, I try to do it every day, but I, I do miss days. There are okay. days I'm on the road and days I forget or oversleep. Uh, it happens. Um, and and I, it's not a big deal. But um, I just get a, a kick out of it. Like I've got diverse musical tastes. Uh, I, I, I cannot sit here and tell you that I'm an... A, I could go back and forth with a, a, a rap or hip hop aficionado and, and be on the same planet with, with him or her. Uh, it's, it's a genre I really enjoy. And I've enjoyed it since I was in high school when uh, the Sugar Hill Gang put out Rapper's Delight. I could still quote it by word uh, and sing it by word. But, um, uh, you know, I, I listen to it. I enjoy it. I probably listen to the Rolling Stones more than I listen to anything. But um, but I, I just I've I've always had fun with it. I try to have fun with social media and uh, and not take it too seriously. But at the same time, um, you know, it's a tool. You know, it's kind of like uh, fire. You know, you would you could use it to to warm your house or you could use it to burn your house down. And uh, so I, I hopefully use the appropriate care with it. But my wife got me into social media. She said she said uh, if you don't if you don't get involved in this everybody's going to think you're some nerd that's uh, watching film all day. And all you do is talk about basketball and they're not going to know you have a personality. And I'm saying, what if I don't, what if I don't have one, I'm going to confirm it, but it, it's just been fun. And, uh, and you know, my kids get a, get a kick out of it. They're like, you know, why are you trying to be cool? Like you're just not cool. And I go, everybody thinks their parents are uncool. And what's the process by the way? Like how do you pick the lyric for the day? Um, some of it's what I've been listening to lately, uh, that may spark it, you know, like lately I've been, I, I, I was listening to, uh, the recession album. Uh, and so I just kind of went through songs there. I'm, I try to be careful because I don't always know. I mean, I don't always know exactly what these, these references <laughs> and lyrics mean. Right. No, I, I could sit here and lie about it, but I don't know. And, uh, so I go to a, uh, a website that has the lyrics on them and then you can click on it and they'll explain what it means. Wow. Cause I, I certainly don't want to put out anything that has a meaning I don't intend. I mean, none of this, you know, none of this stuff, like, you know, you mentioned in the trap. I mean, I, that's not my, that's not my, my thing, but it's a, I, I look at, at rap and hip hop as an art form. And so I'm hopefully trying to, honor the art form a little bit, but I do have to modify some of the lyrics for reasons you can probably understand and uh, anybody could. Um, but, um, you know, I you try to make sure that I understand it as best I can so that I don't put out something, you know, horribly offensive or things like that. But I think most people by now realize that this is somewhat tongue in cheek that a, uh, 
you know, 59 year old white guy who grew up in Rolling Hills, California, about as far away from the trap as you're going to get, uh, enjoys this this art form and this music and and the people who who uh, put it out. But but I'm not trying to claim the 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 kind of street cred that uh, that uh, you were mentioning before. That's that, that that's certainly not me. Well, I love when it comes to the lyrics, you're still doing your due diligence, you're still looking things up just to make sure it's all, you know, above board and uh, and professional. So I think that speaks to the kind of person and broadcaster that you are. Uh, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate it. Sorry for going a little bit long here. I really do appreciate your time and keep up all the great work and, and good luck next week uh, as you're doing your 21st NBA draft for ESPN, which is wild. I can't believe that LeBron draft was 21 years ago. Uh, good luck to you and Obviously, enjoy the rest of your summer and good luck uh, next season as well. Thank you so much for this, Jay. Really appreciate it. Ariel, thank you for having me. I hope you know what a big admirer of yours uh, that I am, and it was an honor for me. That was great stuff. Uh, Really thank Jay Billis for his time. Tremendous stuff from him. Thoughtful, like I said. uh, Educational. Honest. Enjoy the way he speaks. Enjoy the way he he addresses things. Enjoy the way he thinks. And most importantly, I enjoy the fact that he's not afraid, that he just tells it like it is. Like the great Howard Cosell used to say, uh, it's really a breath of fresh air. And he continues to do so from the beginning of his career up until now. Uh, one of my favorites in sports television. Thank you so much to him for the time. Thanks to all of you for your continued support. I appreciate it more than you know. We're doing great things over here. So thank you very much for your continued support. Thank you for continuing to download, rate, subscribe, review, comment, all those things, follow, all those things and more. I mean, I'm hitting my microphone here for goodness sakes. That's how thankful I am. If you know me, I like to move my arms around. I like to move my hands around. I get all animated. That's what just happened there. Please don't edit that out. That's how I like to do. And I like doing this show. So we shall continue. For now, though, we say goodbye. Thank you, Jay. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to the production team. I'm Ariel. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.